Good afternoon and welcome to the 205th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we discuss Y2K, COVID-19, and the crisis of expertise with historian Zachary Loeb. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 19th, 2021, there are 2,050,154 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 24,186,358 cases reported in the United States. And there are now 400,292 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, that's up from 398,307 reported yesterday. You may have seen in the news, rightfully, some discussion of that number, 400,000. Um, and it's been discussed in a number of different ways, one of which is that we're closing in on the number of service members, United States service members who died in World War II quite a milestone to reach at this point in a pandemic in which we've moved past milestones very, very quickly. I just want to read an obituary today with some reference to that. I've trying to, been trying to bring humanity to the numbers whenever possible. Let me read this one. Headline is Edward Anderson, World War II veteran who spent months as prisoner of war, dies of COVID-19 at 97. This is written by Rob Menzer. This was a publication of Wisconsin Public Radio and came out December 14th, 2020. Throughout his march across Germany as a prisoner of war, Edward Anderson kept a secret diary. He recorded places, dates, and conditions he and other U.S. Army troops faced. He had to keep it secret from the Nazi guards or risk being shot. Walked 30 miles that day through mud, Anderson wrote in one of his entries. No food or water arrived at small village late Tuesday. December 19th morning, stayed there for five days in a cold, crowded building, received just enough food to keep alive, was real sick all the time. It was 1944. The war in Europe was nearing its end when Anderson was captured in Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge. The month-long battle involved a sprawling front across Germany, Belgium, France, and Luxembourg. In many ways, it would be the last time Adolf Hitler and Germany had any chance of fending off Allied troop advances. After the war, Anderson returned home to his father's dairy farm in Barron County, Wisconsin. He would later take it over himself. He wasn't a talkative man, and he rarely talked about his time in the war. His daughter, Sandra Cherney, was an adult when she learned that he had been a prisoner of war. His diary is one of her most precious possessions. Anderson was 97 when he died of COVID-19 in November one of more than 4,000 Wisconsinites who've died from the disease. Cherney said she doesn't want her father remembered as a victim or known only for how his life ended. At the same time, she feels cheated out of additional years with her dad. She's 74 and lives in Texas, but was, video, but was video chatting with him regularly in his Eau Claire nursing home and planning to visit him in the summer of 2021. His death, she said, makes her want to get to the top of the cell phone towers in Wisconsin and say, listen, people, this is serious. Anderson was born in 1922 in the Barron County town of Almina, Wisconsin. Like many babies then, he was born at home, but he was premature, his daughter said, weighing only 3.5 pounds. The family didn't think he'd survive. An aunt baptized him. They wrapped him and put him in a shoebox and put him on the oven door in the chilly farmhouse. 
Just by surviving, Cherney said, Dad showed his strength from day one. He grew up on his father's dairy farm, where he was friends with workhorses Doc and King. He was a skilled carpenter and built tables and chairs for the Longfellow School that he'd attended. Anderson was 19 years old when Japanese fighters bombed Pearl Harbor. He was drafted into the Army a little over a year later. Wayne Erickson grew up not 10 miles away from Anderson, but the two men didn't meet until they were both captured and put together as POWs. They were among some 2,000 American soldiers forced to march hundreds of miles between prison camps because the facilities were full. The Nazis expected many of their American prisoners to be worked to death, and they showed little care for their health. Our farm, our food at this time consisted of a cup of lukewarm, odd-tasting tea in the morning and a bit of grass soup when we stopped for the night, Erickson wrote in an account published in the 2015 book, The Heroes of Husingen. German guards would fire on any of us who tried to pick frozen vegetables out of the fields or gardens along the roads. We drank water from the ditches. By the time they were liberated by American troops in April 1945, both Erickson and Anderson weighed less than 100 pounds. On the back of his diary, Anderson wrote a list of foods he imagined eating when he got home. Tapioca pudding, apple pie, Wisconsin cheese. A lot of ordinary foods, said Cherney, but they were things he hadn't had for a long time. Anderson was discharged from the Army on September 22, 1945. He was a staff sergeant. He married his wife, Patricia, in 1946. They had two kids, Sandra and her younger brother, Lee, died in a motorcycle crash in 1973. Patricia died in 2009 from cancer. Anderson was a small man, five foot eight, 150 pounds, but he was wiry. In addition to milking 15 cows on his farm, he drove a milk truck. That meant loading and unloading 100 pound milk cans at the creamery. After the war, Edward Anderson drove this milk truck uh, for many years. There was milking in the morning, then the milk route, then whatever needed to be done in the afternoon, Cherney said. Then there was milking at six o'clock again. Cherney's main memory of her father when she was a child was that he was always working. But when she was an adult, they became closer. Even after she and her husband moved to Texas, they visited Wisconsin every summer and it was something she looked forward to. By 2016, Anderson couldn't walk much and mostly used a wheelchair. He was living in the Barron Assisted Living Center Monroe Manor, when representatives from the Barron County Veterans Service Office and then United States Representative Sean Duffy held a ceremony to present him with a POW medal. Cherney said she wasn't sure whether her dad would even agree to have the ceremony. In the end, she said he enjoyed it, and it helped members of the family to learn more and connect to his time in the war, but he kept his usual reserve. When we asked Mr. Anderson if he had anything to say that day, he said no said Veterans Service Officer Scott Bachowski. That was about the only word he spoke. I think he didn't like the limelight. Anderson spent this year under lockdown at his nursing home in Eau Claire. Because older adults are particularly at risk of developing severe symptoms from COVID-19, nursing homes across the country have barred visitors, limited in-person socializing, and taken other precautions. But the virus is persistent, and especially in places where community spread of the coronavirus is high, even those precautions aren't enough. In early November, Wisconsin was experiencing a spike in new infections that was among the worst in the nation. Cherney, who had a regular video conference with nursing home staff, was looking ahead to Anderson's 98th birthday. In a normal year, family members would visit. This year, no one was allowed in. So we talked about the balloons and the cupcakes they could make to make dad's birthday special, Cherney said. By five that afternoon, they called me. They said, your dad's running a fever. We're going to do the fast test, which they did, and he was positive. Anderson had COVID-19. After that, he got very sick very fast. The doctor told Cherney he might not live through the night, but he did. I FaceTimed with him in the afternoon of the next day, Cherney said, and he lived one more day. He lived 48 hours after he contracted the virus. Anderson died two weeks before he would have turned 98. At his age, of course. Ernie, of course, knew that her father could die at any time, but it was still a shock and she's still heartbroken. She said it's hard not to be angry at those who haven't taken seriously the threat of COVID-19 or the costs it inflicts on families, even when those who died have had long lives as her father did. 
We usually come up each summer and visit family and spend time in Wisconsin. That was one of the highlights of the summer, Attorney said. We didn't get to do that this summer because it wasn't safe. And now he's gone. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and really happy to see Zachary Loeb and let me introduce him. Zachary Loeb is a PhD candidate in the History and Sociology of Science Department at the University of Pennsylvania. He works at the intersection of the history of technology and the history of disasters. Zachary's research explores the belief that humanity's romance with technoscience will lead to the end of the world. He works on the history of computing, the history of critiques and critics of technoscience, as well as on prophecies of doom and those who are described both rightly or wrongly as prophets of doom. He's writing his dissertation on the year 2000 computing crisis, also known as Y2K. Zach Loeb, welcome back to COVID, uh, to COVID calls. This is your second uh, visit. And I'd have to go back and look and see when the first one was. You were part of one of the very first researcher roundtables we did. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, I, I participated in one of the early young scholars, young young disaster researchers roundtables back right. when I don't think any of us suspected that we would still be sitting in quarantine so many months later. No, I don't think so. And I do remember it being a really lively conversation. I really appreciate you making the time to come back. I, I'd like to just start, if it's okay, the way you usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and, and what the pandemic is looking like there today. So I'm calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my sense of how the pandemic is in the city is predominantly filtered through news reports because my experience oh we're about to get a visitor he came and he went um my experience of the pandemic in the city has largely been filtered through my own privileged position of being able to kind of work and stay at home um so i only really get a sense of how things are really going when either i'm checking the news which i do regularly or on those occasions where i go out and i walk around and it really feels like the city is still so deserted, even though things are opening up again. It can be very, very strange walking through downtown Philadelphia right now, not just because you see people wearing masks, but because you see the places that you had visited so many times before that are now closed. And it's really, for me, one of the things that I've been wondering a lot about recently is, what are things going to look like when they open back up again? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, there's kind of a, a feeling of desertedness in many parts of the city, but then at the same time, you go through certain areas and you know you walk by a gym and you see that there are lots of people inside working out, or you walk by a restaurant that has pretty much built indoor seating outdoors and it's quite crowded. And there are moments where you wonder to what extent people are still taking this seriously. What about at your um, in your program? Are, have you been able to go back to campus, the student lounge, the library there at Penn? All places I know that you you like to haunt <laughs> under ordinary conditions. So, prior to beginning to work on my PhD, I was a professional librarian, first for many years in New York, and then I continued working at the Penn Libraries in some capacity once I came to Penn. And once the pandemic hit and it kind of shut down the reading room, shut down the library, it's really been the first sustained period in a many, many years of my life where like I'm not going to a library almost every day, which feels very very strange. I, I miss the scent of old books and I miss rifling through archival material. In terms of my own research, uh, as is the case with many researchers, the loss of access to archives, the inability to safely travel to do research has certainly been a problem, has certainly been something that has caused some stumbles. I'm pretty fortunate in that I've been able to gather quite a lot of material from online, from online rep repositories, um, that I've been able to gather a fair amount of primary source material myself. So even though my research has hit a lot of hurdles, uh, 
And even though kind of moving forward, I really do need to get back into some archives, I've still been able to uh, move forward with my research. Although, as, as I know you and I have talked about a little bit in the past, it's a very, very strange time to be studying disasters when you're living through one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've talked about that with lots of really smart people on COVID calls about um, that spirit, that experience of the uncanny, in which that thing that you you studying disasters, which could be millennia or, or more ago or or others who've thought about disasters and how we think about them in the future. People like Lee Clark, who I had on early on. Um, but then to have it playing out literally constantly and the pace of this disaster, which has been not fast or slow, it's somewhere in between. It is, it is strange because we also, we spend our lives studying this. So we, we, we're supposed to think we're supposed to understand it. I've been surprised at every turn how little I've known about disasters this year. I wonder if you've had that same feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there are so many things that it's almost as if I'm living at a distance from so much of what's going on because so much of my day is spent sitting in front of my computer, going through archival material about the past disasters that I study, and then I'll take a break from studying that to check the news for five minutes, and I'm almost just doing the same thing reading about another disaster that's unfolding and sometimes i forget to you know flip that switch in my brain to go mm -hmm. from okay here i am studying to here i am just living so there are all of these moments in doing research where you're like why is it that this person is making this decision how is it that this person cannot see the implications why aren't they taking this more seriously mm -hmm. And then you switch over to kind of the news coverage and it's very much the same experience. Mm -hmm. What are these people thinking? How do they not see how this is going to go, how this is going to develop? And there is so much discussion right now about history, about how history judges, about how history remembers and it can be very, very disconcerting to be in the midst of hearing all of these discussions about how history remembers, how history judges, when one of the unfortunate things you learn when you study history is that many societies are not particularly good at learning from history. Mm -hmm. So hopefully moving forwards, we'll learn from this. Yeah, that, that experience is one um, I've had multiple times this year, too. I've heard others talk about it. You know, the constant use of the, of the idea that um, uh, history will, you're going to be on the wrong side of history or history is going to judge. And I had that experience, and sometimes I'm like sitting there, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm history. I'm a historian. Like, am I judging? And it's, it doesn't work that way. We're not, uh, we're not a judge and jury. Um, we're trying to piece together fragments. And that's another, I think, part of this uncanny experience myself. And I wonder what you think of this, particularly as a person with training in library and archives, this idea that somehow the past reveals itself as a totality, when of course anybody who works, not just historians, but anybody who thinks seriously about the past knows that it's shards and fragments and scraps that we mm -hmm. assemble. And that's what is happening right now too. It's so fragmentary in the moment, and I don't blame that on social media. The lived experience of this disaster is absolutely fragmentary. I, so I find myself constantly wondering, do I have time to read this article? Should I read that article? Are we supposed to be looking at this bank of photographs? How do we take it in? I wish that I knew the answer to that question. I mean, I, I think that that's one of the huge challenges of how to make sense of this, how to take it in, what to focus on, what not to focus on. And the question of what is the material that is going to be key for telling the story when the story eventually gets told and which voices get privileged, which voices go unheard. I mean, I, I think that it's a really powerful thing that you begin these COVID calls by reading one of the obituaries because 
one of the problems once you get to death at the scale that it has reached is it is so so difficult to treat 400,000 not as just this big obscure number but to recognize that like that's 400,000 people that's 400,000 lives and i mean when i'm saying 400,000 i'm privileging that number because that's the milestone that we passed in the united states today you know last week the world passed 2 million you know those names those stories how do you capture that i remember hearing earlier on in the pandemic that there were some efforts underway to do oral histories with some of the nurses and doctors and other frontline staff and i think that one of the tasks for historians librarians archivists um, researchers curators people who are going to be working on capturing and telling this story is really going to be to think about what is the material that gets gathered to tell this story and it's going to need to be a, a way that captures things from social media that captures the communication between people that captures you know i i wish that there was some way that archives would be readily and easily able to preserve stuff like you know to use a personal example like my family we held our passover seder over zoom mm -hmm. you know last spring and things like that i feel like are going to be really really important snapshots of what happened how people lived during this and it's going to be very very challenging for all of us who care about preserving this history to make sure that that history gets preserved um so i'm really hoping that as things you know transition out that stuff like oral history projects can really really take off that there can be very very big oral history projects ones that encourage lots of people to come and document their own experience their own family experience you know i think that it is absolutely essential that we make sure that we're capturing the stories of doctors and nurses mm. um, but i also think that when we take get this frontline story we also really need to make sure that we're getting the story of janitors and postal workers and food delivery drivers you know and all of these other people who have been so essential for getting for getting us through this who have been so so vital but who are often the types of voices that history kind of misses out on absolutely I, that's going to be a big a big part of this going to be a big, big push for that i you know i was thinking as you were talking about the obituary i read of edward anderson from wisconsin who by all this account was a quiet uh pretty reserved guy but he kept a diary as best he could literally as a pow yeah. uh, so talk about reporting from a disaster and that that little artifact becomes a cherished part of his family experience and one that they don't get to interact with until his children are actually adults i think that also speaks to the fact that um as much as I think people would like the instant sort of sense making, and that's normal and we want that, I think it's good. We have to try to make sense of what's happening around us. But we have to give ourselves the time and space that we may not, even though we are living through this, we may not have a good handle on what we're living through mm -hmm. in the broader sense of what a disaster does to society for some long period of time to come. I just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today to Zachary Loeb. We're supposed to be talking about Y2K and here we got talking about disaster history, but I think it's good and it, it's resonating. I know, you know a lot of historians do participate in this program. Jacob Steer-Williams certainly does and he's uh, talking about this experience as he says, telling himself it's okay to not always be on as a pandemic 
as a pandemic scholar. Um, but then in his free time, he watches COVID calls. So I don't know what to say about that, <laughs> but I'm glad he is. Um, let me, um, Zach, let me ask you about the work. I want to ask you about Y2K. I had a great piece um, in the Washington Post. I know you participated in a, a web series for CNN. Talk a little bit about your project on Y2K. Set the stage for us. Many of us lived through it, and yet, again, it was one of these moments that it was relevant in the moment. It passed through, and I think a lot of us haven't taken time to really analyze what the heck it was. So the year 2000 computing crisis, or Y2K, as it is commonly remembered, um, I like to talk about it, I like to frame it as an economic problem that became a technological problem that eventually became a social problem. And I think that the way that many people are aware of Y2K, the way that many people remember Y2K, really relates to it when it became a social problem. So the origins of Y2K go back to the middle of the 20th century and to kind of some of the early moments in the history of computing. Early on, memory was very, very expensive. And anything that you could do to save space, to save memory, was therefore going to save money and it would also allow your computer programs to work more quickly. So computer programmers, and we're talking about the 1960s now, one of the things that they hit on as a solution to this economic problem was that they would truncate dates. So instead of representing a date with eight characters, you know, so today is January 19th, 2021, so that would be 01192021, they sliced off the first two dates of the year so that today's date would have looked like 0119. 21. Now, this is something that might not strike any of us as particularly odd or difficult, but for the computer systems in which this was running, the assumption that the machine was being told to make was that the first two digits in the year were 1 and 9. And so, when 99 rolls over to 00, zero does the computer think that it is 2000 or 1900. Now, the problems that this generates are kind of wide ranging. Some programs would shut down, some programs would spit out garbage data, some, some programs would, you know, muddle through. But all of the pro, well, many of the programmers who are working in you know, this early time period, who are responsible for this, they all know that this is going to be a problem eventually. You know, they know that the year 2000 is coming, but there are two problems. One, they can't believe that the code that they are writing in the 1960s is still going to be in use decades and decades later. And they were confident that somebody else was going to fix this way ahead of time. So now fast forward, you know, and I'm going to jump quite a few decades, although I do want to note that in this interim period, there are definitely people who are sounding the alarm. There are definitely people saying, hey, we need to take care of this. But then you get to the 1990s and suddenly more and more computer programmers are saying, and people also in the government are saying, hey, this is a really big problem and we have to do something about it. We have to fix it. And so starting around kind of the early 90s, 1993 is one date that, you know, is a good one to pay attention to because that's when Peter Diager publishes his piece Doomsday 2000 in Computer World, um, which kind of really lights the fire within the, the computer community. Um, there's this greater sense that, okay, we really need to fix this, that, you know, this is a problem in computer systems all over. Let's fix it. Let's get working on it. And although, you know, it takes some time to really get enough buy-in from the people on top, eventually a lot of this work really starts happening. And it's going forward. It's progressing. The government is paying attention to it. And then 
So that's the technological problem part. Then we get to the social problem part. And this is the part of the Y2K saga that I think most people remember. And this is the moment where the mass media starts to really pay attention to this. And they start to really focus on kind of the absolute worst case scenarios, the doomsday scenarios, the apocalypse scenarios. So even though by the time, you know, the media really, really ceases on this, which is around 1998, but it really, really picks up. By that point, most people in the technical community, most of the computer professionals are saying, you know, we're working on this, the work is getting done, we're gonna have it fixed in time. Mm -hmm. But a huge level of public concern has exploded around this. And part of the issue here is that people, as we're getting to kind of the late 90s, are aware of the fact that their lives have become more and more closely entangled with computers. More of them are using computers at work, more people have personal computers, and also they are increasingly aware that computers are at work running so many different things, key pieces of infrastructure, government systems, hospital systems. Right. So there is this tremendous concern that we have put so much trust and we have become so reliant on computers and what is going to happen if they stop working. Mm -hmm. And what makes it worse and what makes it all the more challenging is that one of the things about Y2K that makes it different from so many other, you know, predicted disasters, predicted crises, is that there was a very specific time and date when everybody thought things were going to go wrong. You know, that moment of rollover. Right, so it's like a, it's a doomsday prediction um, that everyone can sort of, you know, the, literally the date on the on the calendar. But, and, and I remember, well, I remember one very silly thing is I have a friend who's a historian of technology who had a Y2K tie. And, and, and there was a lot of sort of ephemera out there um, that you- I've been collecting uh, it. Well, <laughs> I'm sure you have. And, and so it did get wrapped up in the popular culture here around um, just some big event that everybody could get excited about, I suppose, or wonder if something was going to happen. But I remember the darker side of those discussions too. Airplanes are going to fall out of the sky. Nuclear power plants are going are to um, stop functioning. Um, the told everybody should pull as much money as you can out of the ATM machine. The ATM machines will be broken down. And, and always just beyond that is, and this is perennial in disaster work, is this sort of sense that's always out there that, well, then society is going to fall apart. And, and yeah. so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, particularly as it moves from the economic, I like the way you stage it, from the economic to a technical problem to a fully imagined social problem with a strong media buy-in on the, on the eve of Y2K. Bring us up to that moment and some of the things that you think, some of the narratives that were getting the most traction and then, and then tell us what happened. Well, uh, I mean, to kind of cite the very examples that you just gave, you know, there are some of these very, very evocative, disastrous ideas that get built into this, that the planes are gonna fall out of the sky that nuclear power plants are going to melt down, that everybody needs to take money out of the banks because the banks are, you know, your ATM is gonna stop working, all of the account information is going to get deleted, all of, all of everything's gonna go haywire. And the challenge here is that many of these predictions, which really permeated lots of the public, many of those really didn't have any basis in the actual risks in the actual dangers in what the technical experts the government researchers thought was going to happen thought was going to be possible and in a lot of cases it's kind of like significant jumps where one scale of the problem which needs to get taken seriously gets really blown out of proportion. So apart from people on kind of, pardon the term, the apocalyptic fringe, I don't think many people really thought that planes were gonna fall out of the sky. However, lots of people thought that 
airports were going to have issues, that the FAA was going to have problems. Were nuclear power plants going to melt down? Again, you don't find as many people who really, really thought that that was going to happen. But there was a huge amount of work being done to make sure that nuclear power plants were ready. Huge amount of work being done to make sure that, like, nothing bad would happen, that they wouldn't shut down, that there wouldn't be rolling blackouts or brownouts that get triggered by a nuclear power plant issue. And same thing with the banks. You know, there were concerns that some banks might have issues, but the bigger concern on the part of many of, you know, the government figures and such was that the concern was going to trigger a panic and the panic was going to cause the problem. That if everybody went and took their money out of the bank, that was going to, of course, be the issue. And so you have kind of these very big apocalyptic concerns. And then rollover happens, 1999 becomes 2000, and people look around and they go, the planes didn't fall out of the sky. Right. Yeah. The nuclear power plants didn't melt down. You know, capitalism didn't collapse. Obviously, this was a hoax. And the problem here, um, and this is one of the things that, you know, I'm really hoping to kind of get at in this project, is that the reason that many of the kind of bad potential things, many of those worst case scenarios didn't happen is because people did the work. Hmm. You know, it's not just that people said, hey, this is a risk. And everybody was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Let's roll the dice and wait and see. Thousands of people worked an unimaginable number of hours throughout the 1990s to make sure that these systems would still function. And then the other, sorry, just one other little thing is that when people are expecting the absolute apocalyptic scenario, then it often leads them to overlook the things that did go wrong. So planes didn't fall out of the sky, but lots of airports had problems. There wasn't a nuclear power plant that melted down, but there were some nuclear power plants that still had issues. There are reports of some banks, some ATMs having issues. There were still problems. They just didn't rise to the apocalyptic scale. And one of the other things that's worth noting here is even though so much attention was put on, you know, the rollover from 1999 to 2000, Y2K related problems were happening throughout the 1990s. And one of the reasons why so many of the businesses, so many government agencies really realized they had to do something and take it seriously is because they were having Y2K problems before the year 2000. Before Y2K. I have so many questions about this, but I want to I want to um, quote you back to you in this great Washington Post piece that you um, published and I'll tweet it out here in a little bit, but you said 20 years later, we're able to look back at Y2K with derision, not because Y2K was a hoax, but because concerned people took the threat seriously and did something about it, a lesson for addressing myriad problems today. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that interval then. Um, You know, what's happened in the 20 years since 2000 from your perspective? that puts us in a situation that I, I take you judge and the fact that we're having this conversation in the midst of this pandemic speaks to this. Um, we're not able to deal with long-term planning, listening to expertise and putting the experts to work ahead of time towards a common goal. It seems like a skill set that we've lost. I'll speak to the United States on this, not to other countries that have done better. What about that 20 years? What's happened? So many things have have happened. Um, I think that one of the, I feel like every historian winds up having a moment where they go, you know, the decade, the century, the period that I work on is really, really important. 
And so I recognize that I'm biased and kind of feeling like the 1990s are a really important decade. They're all important decades. They're, they're all important centuries. But I think that one of the things that makes Y2K so interesting in that historical moment is that the Cold War has ended. The war on terror hasn't begun yet. It's this moment of American triumphalism, um, which often gets connected very strongly to scientific and technological advances, like the computer. It's a moment of kind of great optimism. And it's also a moment where, to a certain extent, the US isn't feeling like it has kind of a world adversary in the way that it had in pre previous decades or the way it would have kind of in the following decades. So that the computer, this icon of our strength, our power, suddenly becomes the risk, suddenly becomes the threat is significant. And I think that one of the other issues is that terrible though this is, when something goes wrong, when a disaster happens, there is such attention devoted to what went wrong. There's so many reports about, you know, how did this happen? How could this have happened? But I feel like a lot of the times when something goes right, when a disaster is prevented, oftentimes like the public moves on pretty quickly. There isn't the same attention that gets focused on it. So if Y2K really, really had been horrible and everything had gone wrong, I think there would have been a lot more attention to what was missed. Granted, you know, between the House of Representatives and the Senate, there were over a hundred hearings held in the 1990s. So there was tremendous attention focused on this, but then in the aftermath of it, you know, the House of Representatives has another session about kind of what we learned, the Senate issues another kind of concluding report, but there wasn't the same amount of focus on what went right and how do we put those lessons into practice. And then other things that kind of disrupt it is that Y2K was kind of one of the last acts of the Clinton administration. Once that administration ends and you move into the Bush administration, focuses on new issues, new concerns, whether that's starting with the contested election between Bush and Gore, or then moving very quickly within George W. Bush's administration to other events, September 11th, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, Hurricane Katrina, the events that take up the focus of disaster, risk, danger, they really shift in a different direction. And that direction is away from Y2K, which very quickly becomes remembered comically. And part of the reason it's remembered comically is because of the level of absurd hyperbole that surrounded the risks of it. So this, um, also this the point you made earlier, uh, I think is a really interesting one to think with because the specificity of the time, um, and I, I really, I'm really fascinated by this fact that Y2K problems are happening throughout the 90s, but the the real moment of doom is going to be, you know, when the clock turns um, in the year 2000, and and yet, and, okay, so that's got that's got tremendous focusing power, surely. But, you know, I've talked to so many people on COVID calls, public health experts who said, look, I mean, these pandemic outbreaks, coronavirus outbreak, when we see them intermittently, you know, public health experts can tell leadership, this is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And we can even tell you that it's going to happen within probably this time range. We have wildfire seasons. We have hurricane seasons. We can say with some degree of confidence that these kinds of events are going to happen um, within these few months. Uh, seismicity is a little bit harder, but still, I mean, people they talk about repeating events in certain places and fault lines. I mean, for every one of these kinds of hazards, 
Um, the time frames are narrow enough that you would think they would defeat cognitive bias against, you know, the putting things off, but not so. And so there's something really, I think, fascinating and tantalizing about this case of the incredible focusing power of that date. Um, and then, as you say, when it doesn't happen, rather than people saying, oh, good job, let's study what we did right. The answer is, oh, maybe we overspent on preparing for this, or it was, it was a hoax after all. I, I want to give you a chance to react to that, but I wanna also want to know, um, I asked you about sort of what had happened in the interval since Y2K to now, but I'd like to know a little bit about that 20 years before, too, because that yeah. seems like that might be a really important period. You mentioned the Cold War. I think there's something in there. So I'll stop and let you talk, but I'm, I'm so excited about the many different dimensions of the work. So, without wanting to, you know, go off on kind of Cold War techno science and no, you the history and the history of and the history of computing, um, I think that in the period leading up to the 1990s, this is a period where there is still tremendous confidence and um, prestige to be held by scientific and technical experts um, who are seen as being in possession of special expertise, special knowledge, special skill sets, um, and the idea that that particular level of knowledge and expertise is also going to drive society forward. And this isn't just the preceding 20 years. Um, I mean, to make kind of a, a larger point, although one that I think is backed up pretty well in scholarship, you know, I think that throughout American history, frequently the idea of techno-scientific progress is specifically um, connected to the broader idea of social progress. Mm. And that's not just the computer. I mean, you, you see that throughout history. I'm thinking of Carolyn Marvelin's excellent book, when, uh, when Old Technologies Were New, that talks about how the idea that whatever the new technology is in the moment is transforming society for the better, that it's driving society forward in all kinds of good ways, um, that's a big part of the way that throughout history, a lot of Americans have thought about science and technology. And in the 20 years leading up to the 1990s, the computer and computing really becomes this tremendous resource for businesses, for governments, um, that is going to be able to enable them to do more and more stuff, all kinds of new tasks, it's gonna enable them to do them more efficiently. And that again, this is then going to be the driver of all kinds of social progress. And then of course, as computing moves away from being you know, these huge machines that take up entire rooms to becoming something that, you know, you can have on your desk, you can have a personal mm -hmm. computer, you can use it for your own purposes. Even though by the 90s, computers haven't become as kind of ubiquitous as they are now, by the 90s, especially the late 90s, computers were becoming more and more present in daily life. And it's not just that people were using them more, it's that as this reliance is happening, people are also getting a sense that they are reliant on these systems that they do not fully understand, that they do not fully control. So these machines that on the one hand are kind of seen as the gifts of a certain kind of technical expertise, people also begin to worry that they are now at the mercy of those technical experts, of those people who actually know how these things work. You know, one of the things that I've come across it several times in the course of my research looking at government hearings and stuff of, of that sort is moments where a member of Congress will say something along the lines of, wait a second, when did our water system become reliant on computers? Right. When did we think that was a good idea?
That's really, it's really fascinating to, to put it in that context of, and, and to bring it back also to the, the, comp, the really complex process of the adoption of technology as an economic good, technological good, with social implications that seem to be in, assumed, but not fully understood for some period of time. And again, we're only getting the perspective of a small sliver of the population, those who were invited to weigh in on whether the computer was a good thing or not. I want to surface a question here that Jacob Williams has, has brought forward, which I think is really relevant here too, which is the degree to which, um, you know, Y2K is framed as a crisis um, because the economic disruptions are so clear to demonstrate and whether or not then you don't see public health somehow different and it, differently because we have not in the United States at least um, thought clearly, frankly, about the broader economic implications of poor health or the connection between those two. Maybe we're thinking a bit more clearly about that this year. I'm not totally convinced yet. So I want to I want to bring that question to you, but I want to sort of use that as a way to ask also ask you of direct connections you may see between Y2K and COVID, or how you how when you talk to people about this COVID year, how you draw on this Y2K case. Um, to help people understand better how we how we got here. How can we manage a Y2K, but we can't manage to get gowns and masks to people in the month of April and people die in hospitals wearing garbage bags? I, I don't understand how the same society can have those two episodes within two decades of one another. So that is definitely one of the things that I've been wrestling with a lot. Um, as, as I mentioned, I've been spending a lot of time reading a lot of government hearings and Many of the people who are today in the House of Representatives, who are today in the Senate, um, they were there 20 years ago. So some of the people who today, you know, have been hesitant to accept the realities of COVID-19 or climate change, to give kind of another example of, you know, an impending risk. Um, you know, it's kind of odd to be reading a transcript from 1997 in which that same person is, you know, grilling the experts about are we doing enough to prepare. Um, so I'm trying to organize my, my thoughts here. Um, I think that prevention is always a challenge because even though it pays off, it often doesn't pay off in spectacular ways. And by spectacular, I mean in terms of like a big spectacle. You know, one of the terrible things about disasters is that they create a spectacle. You see what has happened. It is plastered in horrifying detail across front pages on the newscast. And when things are effectively managed, you oftentimes don't see that. You know, prevention, unfortunately, just doesn't carry that same narrative weight, that same narrative might. And it makes it so that many people in government, I think, are frequently hesitant to invest in it because they don't want to be caught on the hook when somebody says, hey, you invested millions of dollars in PPE, and then there wasn't a pandemic. Right. And the defense of, yes, but if there was, we would have been ready, is often kind of a difficult position. I think that in terms of Y2K, and, and I do want to be very, very careful about drawing out similarities in some ways, because although I think that Y2K is very, very serious and I think there's a lot to learn from it. Um, in all of my research, I have yet to be able to link a single death to Y2K. And obviously in this pandemic, millions have died. So I want to be very clear that, you know, I'm not lining them up. Um, I think that one of the things that they have in common, one of the things that makes Y2K in some ways similar to an epidemic is that an epidemic, a pandemic, what, what we're dealing with right now, it isn't just hitting one spot. It isn't just mm. in one city. It isn't just in one country. It is something that requires 
not just a city, not just a state, not just a country. It really requires the world to think together about how are we going to manage this because it's the type of crisis that reveals how closely you know, interlinked things are. Now, one of the things that Y2K has that's similar to that is that this was a problem that was not going to be local. You know, this was a problem that was going to affect computers, not just in a city, not just in a state, not just in a country, but it was really a threat that needed to be addressed on a large scale. And I think that, you know, and I'll kind of round out with this, um, I think that one of the problems, and, and this brings it back to prevention, um, is, is what I've come to kind of jokingly refer to as the Cassandra conundrum, um, where the problem is that if somebody sounds the alarm and their words are heeded, they're listened to, and as a result, the thing they were sounding the alarm about doesn't happen, people will accuse them of overreacting. Mm-hmm. And we saw this, and I think that Y2K is clearly an example of that, where we remember that people sounded the alarm, but we don't remember all of the work that was done in response to that, that then prevented what they were warning about. And I think that if we look back to a year ago, to January, to February, to early March in the United States, so many of the people who were already sounding the alarm about the pandemic, who were warning about how bad it could be, who were warning about the need to get ready, you know, they were kind of being laughed at. They were kind of being ignored. And in those early months, in those early weeks, once the pandemic kind of hit the US, there were still so many people who were saying stuff like, oh, you know, this is just the flu season. This isn't that bad. Right. And the risk, of course, is that if enough people had taken those early warnings seriously and done everything they could to prepare, perhaps we wouldn't be in this mess. And perhaps we would then have some people saying, hey, it wasn't that bad. But it's that middle step which is so important and which so often gets overlooked. Not just the warning, but what gets done in response to that warning. And what gets done in response to that warning is key because that is what often prevents what was warned about from happening. It's so many good points in what you're you're talking about there. And I I just want to come back to this this idea, which you've said a, a couple different ways in this conversation, but also that taking seriously something which can is going to be a global economic threat and seeing the framing of that right up front leads to discourses around um, infrastructure and maintenance that, that where if you overspend, and I'm thinking about, you were talking about the Cold War, the entire Cold War could be seen as a massive overspending for a disaster after August of 1945, after the two bombings, that disaster doesn't occur again, at least in terms of war. So massive overspending and overpreparation for that disaster. Think about it that way. But very few people frame it that way until pretty late. Why? Because, well, it's okay to be overprepared for war. And it's okay to be overprepared for a technical breakdown. Um, but back to Jacob Williams's point, somehow in the United States, at least, being overprepared for a health disaster, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about being would be overprepared for an education disaster. We don't because we frame education and health differently in in the ways that we think about the relationship between the broader economy, the polity, and disaster. I think. And what you're saying is resonating with a lot of people who are watching today. Patrick Roberts likes this method of talking about disasters that weren't. And I just want to shout out to Jorge Benavides Ross and the. Uh, very loyal participant in COVID calls who also talks about this book, The Pandemic, perhaps. So this notion of thinking about pandemics that were averted as well. I can I can think of a there's a sort of a literature that's emerging around this that's be really resonant with your with your work. I, I wanna we're almost up on time, but I since I have you here, I want to ask you just 
couple of quick things. Okay. Something tantalizing we'll what you just said. Yeah. Well, that because it was a global problem. So I do want to think about presidential leadership mm -hmm. in that regard too. How much did it matter that Y2K preparations were unfolding in the Clinton era instead of the well, I was going to say Trump era, but that's probably not good. But instead of the Reagan era, maybe, I don't know. But, you know, how much did presidential leadership matter? That's been such a theme this year. And I don't like to give Trump too much credit because we had a lot of broken things in America before Trump became president. But he weaponized those in a, in a hideous way. And nobody tried to weaponize Y2K as far as I remember. So how important was Clinton as a leader in that regard? Not very, um, actually. If you look at the early work that's being done in the Senate, if you look at the early work that's being done in the House, um, Clinton actually comes in for a fair amount of criticism in 1996 and 1997 um, from Congress members of both parties who are trying to get him to do more, who are trying to get him to take it seriously. And there were certainly people within his administration. There were certainly people in both parties in Congress who were really focused on it. But it isn't until 1998 that President Clinton really starts to kind of speak about it. He, he appoints John Koskinen as kind of his Y2K czar. Um, so I feel like one of the things about President Clinton's role in terms of Y2K is that he didn't make it about him and he didn't try and act as though he was the person who was single-handedly fixing it. Um, it was something that kind of wound up being delegated to lots of other figures throughout the government. And as I mentioned, his Y2K czar, um, John Kaskinen. Um, it does come up in some interesting ways and this is some of the, the few areas where there are more kind of squabbles between Democrats and Republicans in some of these hearings, hmm. is that one of the things that often I find in the hearings is people are wondering why Al Gore isn't trying to kind of lead the charge on Y2K because he was so closely associated with computers and the internet. And there are concerns that come up and you see them in lots of different places where people are saying that if Y2K goes very badly, um, you know, it's game over for Al Gore. Hmm. But, you know, in the end, I don't think that Y2K wound up being a huge issue in terms of the election. I don't think it wound up being a huge part of Clinton's legacy. And because the effort to tackle Y2K in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, was very, very bipartisan. Mm. Afterwards, both parties kind of want to pat themselves on the back for a job well done. Neither group wants to come out and be like, you are responsible for ginning up all of this fear about this. Um, you know, so, so Senator, Senator Bennett, is one of the main people in the Senate who's really leading the charge. He frames himself as the Y2K Paul Revere. And so when all of this ends, he's not gonna be in a position to accuse President Clinton of right. getting people too alarmed about this. There's something a little bit uh, dark and very realpolitik in everything you just said, which is that, and actually there's some pretty good research that backs this up, that um, executive leaders, governors and presidents usually see very little electoral advantage in disaster preparation and not a lot of ground to be gained even when a response goes well if people expect it to go well but there's a lot to lose if something goes badly yeah. uh and so it's that that's something i i'd like to think a little bit more about i'd love to be privy to some of those discussions that must have happened in the oval office between clinton and his advisors in 98 99 which is is there any political sunshine to be had with a, uh, a potential disaster like this. And obviously Gore saw downsides. Um, I don't remember him talking about Y2K on the stump at all in the election season of 99-2000, did he? Um, here and there, but it isn't a huge issue. And, and the, other, the other thing to, to come back to is that by, by 98 and 99, 
most of the technical experts in government, in business, they think that we're on track. They're anticipating that there might be some bumps in the road. They're anticipating there might be some problems, but they know that the work is being done. And when the rollover hits, things are mostly going to be fine. So one of the things that people like John Kaskinen find themselves having to do a lot is going around telling the media, telling the public, like, don't worry so much. Like, mm. planes aren't going to fall out of the sky. Don't worry, we're fixing it. So they kind of have to come in and fill this role of reassuring people. Interesting. I wonder who his peer, I, I hope that we can bring things together enough with this pandemic in the next year that there'll be some some peer of his in 2022 who can go around and tell Americans, don't worry so much about COVID-19. We've got a, we've got a handle on this, but uh, that seems like a very far away. That seems like very far away. I, Zach Loeb, it's always great to talk to you. I always just, my head is just tingling when we have these discussions. There's so much packed in there and also thinking with history, um, not as a parlor game, but as a way to develop modes of thought that can help us understand what's happening right now and what kind of uh, after COVID action um, is gonna be necessary. Thanks a million for making time to join me today. Thank you for having me. Just a reminder to everybody, you can catch COVID calls um, live every weekday at 5 p.m. Tomorrow is inauguration day, I think, as you know. So I hope everybody will be watching uh, President Biden's inaugural speech. And please be sure to join me on Thursday at 5 p.m. when I have a host of the Slate Trump cast and LA Times columnist Virginia Heffernan back for her second visit to COVID calls. I'd be really interested to hear um, what Virginia's takeaway uh, will be from Biden's speech and from this time period we've just lived in the Trump era such as it is. So stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you tomorrow at 5 p.m.